Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of TWIP is brought to you by MediaBytes.com, the marketing school for photographers. Use the code TWIP and get over 24 hours of full-length interviews featuring your favorite photographers for just $27. That's a full $10 off for a limited time. Just go to MediaBytes.com slash TWIP and use the offer code TWIP. This week on TWIP, Sony reorganizes and focuses on digital imaging, the Photoshop CS6 public beta impresses, and an interview on Photographer Law with Alan Melzer. It's Wednesday, March 28, 2012, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. I am your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Joining me today on the show are Miss Nicole S. Young and Mr. Doug K. to talk about some very interesting... I'm not even going to foreshadow the stories this time because I want to dive right into them. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. How you hey, doing? All right. Uh, you know, before before I jump in, because I'm like, as you can tell, I'm rearing to dive into <laughs> dive into these topics. Because I want to make sure we do them justice, because these are meaty topics today. Um, but for those folks who don't know Nicole, Nicole, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and and all that good stuff? Well, I'm a photographer. I'm an author with Peach Pit. I'm I'm based out of Seattle. I'm actually in Portland, Oregon, right now. But um, yeah, I recently wrote a book on food photography, and I've been photographing lots of food and. I'm a Canon user, so I'm sure that'll pop up in some of the discussion points today. But yeah, that's me in a nutshell. We can't avoid the Canon talk. I don't know what it <laughs> is. And also, Mr. Doug K. Hey, Doug, uh, what what can you tell the listeners about yourself? I am a uh, I'm a non professional photographer. Not that I not that I wouldn't want to be, but I'm a serious amateur photographer. I shoot Nikon, and uh, I'm just glad to be here. Nicole's one of my favorite photographers, and I recently. I recently tried to shoot some food, and boy, do I have newfound respect for anybody who can shoot food. <laughs> know, right? That is that is really hard. Not only can Nicole shoot food, but she can shoot food well enough to make other people want to buy it. So, yeah. <laughs> to yeah, buy also, those prints. That's something completely different than just shooting food, right? I am also impressed with anybody who has the self-discipline to make a living shooting st- stock photography. So uh, my hat off go. to Nicole. There you Thank go. you. All right, guys, uh, enough of the love fest. We are going to jump into the feature story. The first one that we're going to talk about is about Sony. So uh, we've talked about Sony before, and we've had folks in the show that, like uh, Christian, um, is a a specialist in the, the Sony sort of line of products. But what I want to specifically talk about is their reorganization. They're they're taking. Um, basically, I'm reading the press release here. They said they're they're organizing the company into three pillars, and one of one, one of them is specifically around digital imaging. Now, Nicole, did you did you look at this press release, and and what do you think about this move that Sony's making? I, I didn't I didn't look at it in too much detail. There's that we have a link to the Petapixel website, and I just kind of read the condensed version, I guess. Yeah. Yep. But what they so so my understanding is that Sony is like right under so it goes Canon is number one yep. Sony number two as far as market share goes and then Nikon's number three correct I guess yep. my only question is like personally I, I work with I have a, almost all of my friends are photographers and, you know like I'd say like ninety five percent of the people that I 
hang out with on a daily basis, whether it's virtual or, you know, in person or they're photographers, they have something to do with photography. I don't know any one person who actually uses Sony as far as, you know, very serious amateurs or I probably met people on photo walks and things like that, but I couldn't name anyone. So it kind of makes me wonder, like, if this is more of a consumer level point and shoot kind of market that they're, you know, boasting that that's where they, you know, that's where they're selling all their cameras to. So not that there's anything wrong with that, but I just, it, I'm just curious about like what the actual numbers are. For- if they're the number two player, who is carrying these Sonys around, right? Or maybe, yeah. maybe it's all of us in the sensors in our iPhones, right? Maybe oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Maybe that's where they're getting these numbers from is they're, they're without Sony, then a lot of the cameras that we've come to know and love with other brands on them would not be in existence or would be using different, different yeah, sensors. They don't really have the, I guess the prestige of, you know, Canon Nikon. Those are the two big names as far as most anyone's concerned. All, other cameras are great. They work fine. But the majority of people kind of gravitate as far, you know, when, when you want to get really, really serious with your photography, most people are going to gravitate towards Nikon or Canon because they're very competitive with each other. They have really great glass. Of course, you know, they're always coming out with really, you know, like they just Mark III just came out, D800 mm-hmm. just came out. So you're always seeing really good advances with these cameras. But Sony, I don't know. They just kind of seem like they're the the little kid that's trying to get its attention, its mom's attention. And they're like, look at me, look at me. And, but yeah. I, I don't, you know, I'm not really educated with all of their products. So that's why I guess so I'm just, you playing. are just so you know, you, uh, Nicole, you're inviting a flame storm from uh, the, I'm from not, the Sony I'm, shooters, I'm, the Olympus shooters, <laughs> the Rico <laughs> shooters. Oh, I know that. Well, I'm not saying there's, there's nothing wrong. I have a Fuji X100. I, you know, I, so I have Fuji. Um, there, there's nothing wrong with other brands at all. It's, it, you know, whatever you've, I hate it when people ask what camera you use. You know, we always right. joke about that. Like, oh, that's yeah. such a great photo. You must have a really great camera. And we all know that that's not true. Uh, my brand of choice is Canon only because it's that's just what I use. I used to use Nikon. I use Canon now. There, there are certain lenses that I really prefer. It would be a huge endeavor to switch to even back to Nikon. I would never do that. Yep. Uh, so it's, you know, I think people, when they really sit back and think about it, as far as, you know, getting angry about something that I'm saying where everything I'm saying is very innocent. I'm not trying to put down a specific type or, you know, try and put push up, you know, the Canon Nikon brand. That's just, if you look at the numbers, that's really, you know, like if you have, I go, I went on a photo walk. I bet you 90, 98% of the people there had a Canon or a Nikon for their, you know, for their camera. If it was an SLR. Yeah. I think, I think what I'm going to start, the flag I'm going to start raving, waving is, you know, there's like banned topics that you're not supposed to talk about in public forums and there's it's sex, religion, politics. I'm going to add to that camera bodies and camera manufacturers. (laughs) (laughs) You can't talk about those four things. Anything else is, is open game, but not those four things. Now, (laughs) Doug, what do you, what do you think about this? Um, you know, as we as we move into this world of you know, or we, you know, look at it from Nicole's standpoint, where you, there's these top three camera manufacturers. Canon's at the top; they've got the pole position. Sony, number two, with a question mark. We're wondering how they got there, <laughs> and then number three is Nikon. With this reorg that Sony's going through now, uh, first of all, first part of this question is how do they get to number two, and is it because of the sensors and all that other stuff? And then the second part of that question is. Is is this the way for, or is is it time now for Sony to be sort of the Monty Python rabbit and start going for the throats <laughs> of these other of these other companies now that they're backed into a corner? What is, what, is it that time? The, the image of the Sony rabbit is just too hard, too compelling. <laughs> uh, well, you know, 
first of all, we don't know what's included in this uh, Sony number two number. You know, you and I probably both have a Sony sensor in our D7000s. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm pretty sure. So, you know, that would count towards their photography revenues. And if you go out there, you know, all three of us are pretty much at what you'd call the high end of photography. If you walk around and look at tourists with their point and shoots, I'll bet a lot of those are Sony cameras and there's a lot of dollars uh, tied up in, in that number of, uh, of units. So it's not surprising uh, that they're out there with that. Um, you know, Sony's just a damn big company and they do a, a lot of stuff. I think, um, you know, what's interesting about Sony is they have a track record of self-destructing. And it tends to come up, you know, I've, I've, I like the alpha cameras. I've never owned one. I've never shot with one. I've held one in a storage to play with it. Um, I think if the autofocus were faster in one, I might use it as a second or third camera from time to time because it's small and compact. I'm really interested in where they're going with their mirrorless technology just because I think some point in the not too distant future, we'll all be shooting with mirrorless bodies. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, if you look at what they, I just, I can only remember memory sticks and, you know, the, and the whole thing with, um, uh, beta and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Be, uh, beta max. And, you know, Sony has the habit of just some, for some reason, going against the standards, going against the flow that everybody's doing and shooting themselves in the foot. Right. Back when Napster was, was taking over the world with MP3 and people were standardizing on the format of MP3, Sony came out with, what was it, AC3? Or something, their their own proprietary format that only their devices could play. Yeah, and, and you had to, and you had to use their software to convert it to anything, which you know was a ridiculous thing. So, the the real question is: as they announce new products, to what extent are they going to be able to say, "Hey, we've got great technology, but we're not going to try and lock you in on some obscure part of it, like the memory device or the mount or something like that"? You know, just go out and compete head to head. Uh, like everybody else does. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we mentioned on a recent show that they they came out with the A five seven camera, and plus I mentioned earlier they're reorganizing. Um, and my comment about the the Monty Python rabbit <laughs> was around that because they're they're projecting. They've stated publicly that they're projecting a two point nine billion with a B dollar or net loss for the year. So. I, it, for it, from my layman's perspective, I'm just a consumer, you know. From my my perspective, I look at that as okay, it's time to get scrappy and hungry and and a little bit crazy, right? And what is what does a little bit crazy mean? Like if you're scrappy and you're like, okay, enough with the BS, this Nikon and Canon stuff. I'm sick of these guys. What can we do to really shake up the market? What would that be? So I'll put it to you guys. If you were Sony. And someone said, okay, you, dude, you just lost $3 billion this year. I'm firing you if next corner, if I don't see some improvement, Doug, what would you, what would you say to your boss about what you're going to do? You know, you've, you've got, you've, you've got unlimited budget, relatively speaking. What would you do to come to position Sony against Nikon and Canon? Well, I'd, I'd ask my boss to give me a good big package to lay me off. <laughs> But uh, after that, and we, after he said no, because uh, <laughs> we don't have the money, I, yeah. I, I, you know, I think one of the, another thing that Sony screws up once in a while is they don't stick with something long enough to really win. Uh, you know, sometimes they give up a little early. I think if they have, if they're number two in photography, they really need to work that as hard as they can. 
Um, and I think there are a couple of areas. One, the point and shoot market is still extremely volatile and there's no reason they can't do well there. I think, but is, the, uh, but is, is, I mean, volatile meaning that it's imploding on itself because of people shooting with no, the camera phones? No, no, I just mean there's a lot of competition. Yeah. yeah. Lot of, but don't, don't let the competition scare you off. You know, they make pretty good. I mean, I have, you know, before I got back into Nikons in 2009, I didn't own a digital camera for only almost 20 years. My wife had a Sony point and shoot, whatever they used to call that thing. The Mavica? And, Remember the Mavica? No, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't the Mavica, but it was. It was smaller. It was a tiny little thing, you know, a real oh, okay. little point and shoot, cyber shot, something cyber oh, shot, okay, yeah. but a little thing. And um, you know, I borrowed her camera, you know, when I wanted to shoot. But but they're you know they're a real player in that business. But I definitely think. They have attracted the attention of the press and all the reviewers with the whole Alpha series. And, uh, you know, whether it's the 77 or the 57 or whatever they're doing, I really hope they continue to excel with that because if nothing else, as Nikon and Canon shooters, they're putting pressure on our manufacturers to make better and better gear. Yeah. But uh, I, I think they can win with those. I think they're damn good cameras and I would love to see them work out the weaknesses and then become a real player in the – um, the semi-pro market. So, Doug, you, you you don't have a magic bullet for Sony for the marketing department for them to to pull the company out of the quicksand. It's not marketing; it's products. It's products. all about the gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Nicole, <laughs> what about you? Nicole, if if you same question, you you've got a limited budget. You've been told you're gonna be you're gonna be giving your walking papers if if things don't improve next quarter at Sony. What do you do to improve the product line so that they can become competitive against Nikon and Canon? I actually have to agree with Doug. I you take a, a, you ask for a, a package, a layoff yeah, package. Yeah, give me a give me a good severance package so yeah. I can go find another job and have some money. No, uh, it's it's hard because you know they could push into the point and shoot. That's you know like he's like Doug was saying. It's there's a lot of competition, but that's probably where they're selling. That's my guess. You know, if they're for the consumers, it's probably where they're selling more of their actual cameras. But the problem with the the you know the consumers the people who just buy point and shoots they're not gonna uh, not, I'm totally guessing here but my guess is that they're not as likely to be brand um, they're not gonna stick to one brand as much as someone like me or you know the the average SLR shooter because yeah. I I'll stick with Canon because I have a Canon body I have lenses that fit that and I'm not gonna stray from that because it'd just be too much of an investment it would take a lot to convert someone over i mean you know it would almost take sony telling me that they would sponsor me and buy every single piece of sony camera equipment and give it to me for free but then i would still probably think about it <laughs> and maybe say really? no wow yeah. that's saying a lot so if i mean from a because we're all gearheads you know yeah. for one degree or another so you you love gear right so if if sony came to you and said okay whatever you want from our arsenal you can have it just just you know wave our flag nicole uh, but you can't shoot Canon anymore, and sorry, you have to. You can't shoot Nikon. You'd say no. Tough call. No, I'm not saying I'd say no. I just, I wouldn't. It wouldn't be. An, it wouldn't be an um, automatic yes. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be. Mm-hmm. Well, let me play with your product and see. If I, I'm one of those people who I don't promote something unless I actually believe in it and I actually like using it. And it's, you know, it's. So it's like a very personal thing for me. Yeah. So, but throw the I, throw the wrinkle in there that you, you know, and I know from talking to people that use Sony, it, it's amazing, and it and it. 
it's it's underrated when you put when you stack it up feature for feature against Nikon mm-hmm. and Canon, right? So let's let's yeah. give it that. Let's say it's it's the, the the dark horse in the race, and people just don't understand what the power is, or for whatever reason, or they're like you're saying, they're they're locked into their own brand because they've got an investment in lenses, etc. So all that notwithstanding, so you go in to a Sony store, <laughs> you know, in the mall or something, or wherever, and they they load you down with Sony gear. Do you think you could create the caliber of work that you create today with the with your current hardware? Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind that I would have uh, hand me any camera. I mean, of course, sometimes it's, it has to do with the type of lens you're using, but it's it's not the brand name on the camera. It's it's how I feel when I use the camera. That's what using gear is all about for me. Mm-hmm. It's not always the result. Of course, there are sometimes you need special tools like a tilt shift lens to get a certain look or a macro lens to get a certain look. But camera bodies, for me, I switched to Canon because I enjoyed using the buttons and the dials and the knobs and where the menus were on the Canon more than I did the Nikon. And when I switched, I wasn't I wasn't very in, uh, invested into my Nikon gear, yet, so it wasn't it wasn't very expensive for me to switch over. I didn't have like an arsenal of lenses, you know. I had a few solid lenses and one camera body, and I was like, okay, this will be easy. I'm just going to make the plunge. I love that point. Yeah, that's a great point. I, and I say the same thing because you know it's not the face of the, the gear and the sensors and the technology is to a point now that. You know, we we would be hard pressed to be able to be pushing up against the limits. You know, especially as an amateur photographer, to be pushing up against the limits of most of the gear that's out there. Our D seven thousands, our D, our five Ds, etc. All this stuff is is are supercomputers with these crazy magical NASA style optics in them, right? So. Yeah, so what, like Nicole, what you were saying, what it comes down to, and for me, if I, I've been shooting Nikon since '89, you know, <laughs> so it's going to take a lot. It's going to take dynamite to get me to switch to something else. So the more, you know, if I wave the Nikon flag, it's not so much because I think Nikon is so much better than every other brand out there. It's muscle memory for me, mm-hmm. right, Doug? Is the same for you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's absolutely the same. And I'm just, you know, like Nicole, I'm, I'm, I'm in Nikon because I'm in Nikon. I could have just as easily started with Canon and, and been in that side. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I really, I was close to buying a, a an Alpha seventy seven as a the third body, but um, you know, I played with it. I read some reviews, and it's just not quite where I want it to be. I hope they get better. Um, you know, now I've got my eyes on a Fuji X Pro one, but even that's not quite where I'd like it to be. But it sure looks like an interesting camera. Mm-hmm. But that's a, that's another story. That's another, we won't we won't go there. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. So yeah. no one has any magic bullets to oh, give Sony I, under their reorganization. One, I mean, here, here's an interesting thing about Sony. Now, so Nikon comes out with the D4. The second memory slot is an X. Uh, sorry, a QXD card. Mm-hmm. Sony's the only one who makes that card. Mm, right. Right. Yeah. Now, yeah, I mean, that's right. I forgot now, about that. Yeah. Now, there's a strange relationship. Not strange, but there's a relationship between Nikon and Sony that we don't really understand. We know it has to do with sensors, but it's going to really be interesting. You know, a year from now, looking back at this decision by Nikon to go with the Sony QXD as their as their high capacity, high speed cards. Uh, certainly, there are people complaining the fact that they can't get them from anybody but Sony. Anybody but Sony so far. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a crazy world, you know. And I, I forgot about that QXD format. And I think it's a, a what what's the word that they used? Coopetition, not coopetition, <laughs> right. or right. frenemies, or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, but it's uh, yeah, it's when you're in business against each other, but you you have to you have to allow certain certain allowances for for business to continue. Yeah. Interesting. 
All right. Uh, before we continue, I'd like to remind the listeners that if you'd like to contact us, you can do so via our site at thisweekinphoto.com. There is a contact us page that's a direct pipeline into us. Just send us a message and we will be certain to get it. If you want to uh, send us a message or something, please use that area. If you want to interact with us via the socials or social networks, you can there on every page of This Week in Photo, there are links to all of our presences, whether it be Facebook, Google+, Twitter, etc. So just go to This Week in photo.com and look on the right side of the page and you'll see little icons for everywhere else where you can interact with us online. All right. Uh, next story, Nicole, I know you know all about this one. I've been <laughs> retweeting some of the videos that you've put up. Oh, um, yeah, you're welcome. Um, so Adobe has released the public beta of Photoshop CS six. And I got to say, I've been playing around with it too. I may throw a video or something up as well. And it's been, I'm really impressed with the speed. It's just I don't know if it's just me, but it's just crazy fast. <laughs> and, and the dark interface, I don't know. I don't, I'm, the jury's still out on the dark interface. So I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to put it to this crew. And I said this in a tweet that it's fast, but I, I'm still getting used to the, to, the, to the darkness of the UI. Maybe it's just because I've been using Photoshop since you know, the, the Cretaceous period. But it's, you know, it's a little bit jarring when you first get into it. So, Nicole, tell me what you think. What, what do you like most about Photoshop CS6? Well, I actually do like the dark interface. Uh, you know, one thing that I'm sure you probably know this, Frederick, but you can go into the preferences and change it. You can change it back to the standard, the classic interface. The, yep. the but it defaults to the one. dark, though, right? Probably. Well, they, yeah. I mean, think about it from a marketing perspective. This it's a it's a brand new version of Photoshop. They want it to look new, you mm-hmm. know, and by automatically making it a darker black, you know, it's more along the lines of Lightroom and, and Photoshop Elements, Elements, I believe it's yeah. that dark interface as well. Yep. So you're, you, when you open it, you're going to be like, oh, it's new. It's different. You know, it's not the same CS5 or CS4 or CS3 that you used to, that you had, you know, previously installed. But I, I really like it. I've I've had a, you know, good chance to really play around with it. Uh, I think some of the things that I like the most, uh, well, actually, the, I did uh, about five different videos last week. I posted them all last week. Um, about some of the newer features. And I kind of focused on the ones that I was impressed with. Um, video to me, they, I don't know under the hood what they did with video, but they made it. First of all, you don't have to have Photoshop extended to use video. And I think that's awesome. Uh, you, you just have the basic version of photo, Photoshop. Photographers are all having, they all have video. We almost all of us have video on our, our cameras, whether it's an iPhone or a point and shoot or an SLR. So it's great that they added that just for the, the average user of Photoshop. It's easier to use. I might actually use it now before it was pretty clunky and complicated, especially if you're not used to doing any video editing with a timeline. Um, even I, you know, I use Premiere Pro, so I'm familiar with it, but I never wanted to use it in Photoshop. Uh, let's see some of the other things. Just some of the the reorganization of the menu items, you know, they changed, they took away a bunch of the filters. They didn't take them away. They just consolidated everything to a filter gallery. And I don't know, I could go on and on with, with what I like about it. So, so you, so you'd say it's a worthwhile upgrade for the folks that are still stuck in CS or or CS 5.5. You know, I will be honest. It's it's hard for me to say that because I don't. I, I I get the upgrade automatically with with one of my jobs. I I do Photoshop help desk. You know, people who are NAPP members, which is the National Association of Photoshop Professionals, they can ask questions about Photoshop, and I'm one of the people who answer those questions. So I automatically get an upgrade. So it's really hard for me to actually kind of sit back and and you know t- for me for myself and say would I upgrade? You know, because I I I get the upgrade anyways. But I'm also one of those people that even if 
they didn't give it to me for free or, you know, I'm not, I don't have anything to do with Adobe. So I, I can, you know, it's, it's a completely different organization, but even if I didn't get that uh, version, you know, with my job, I'd probably upgrade anyways, just because I, I, you know, it's, it's my, it's industry I work in. So I always, (laughs) when it's stuff like that, and I don't know how much is an upgrade with Photoshop is like, one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars, something like that. Yeah, anyway, yeah. So, yeah. I don't. Know, I think so. I, th- I think especially if you have anything to do with video, and I think the performance is really improved. They. Have, oh, here's my absolute favorite feature, and actually, this for some people may actually be worth the upgrade is auto save. <laughs> it you can set it to save like every five minutes, every ten minutes. So if you're working on a really extensive file, it'll save in the background, so it doesn't eat up like. Let's say you finish a photo, uh, you know, editing an image, and then you have like twenty layers. You click save, and you get a spinny whatever, and then it crashes. And you lose your entire file. You didn't lose very much in Photoshop CS6. You're actually just going to get, you know, maybe a few minutes of work that you'd lost if, if it does that to you because it saves in the background. So, yeah, that's great. Now, Doug, what, <laughs> what about you? Are you uh, are you on? The, so the, here's a question I would I would point to you, Doug. If we've been preaching on the show, I mean, we haven't been preaching, but a lot of people have been saying that you can get by with Lightroom and Elements, right? As Especially if you're cast crunch, you can just get Lightroom and Elements, and once you bump your head against the ceiling, then you probably want to jump into Photoshop. What do you say? I mean, is that still, does that still hold true, or should they jump into CS6? Well, of course, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Um, I happen to be a Lightroom and Photoshop user. I have previously been doing working in Photoshop on almost every one of my images, um, Lightroom 4 is a much bigger improvement than Photoshop CS6. But wait a minute. So you're, you're still going into Photoshop on every one of your images, but you're using Lightroom. What are you? Well, let me, let me, let me back up. That's what I'm saying. I used to do that because okay. I wasn't able to get, I wasn't able to do everything I wanted to do in Lightroom. I wanted layers and I wanted, you know, that's the main thing is some of the things I can do with layers and things like that. Well, I, I'm sort of in a trap because Lightroom 4, of course, uses the new Adobe Camera Raw engine. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I want to work in Lightroom 4 and I want to be able to go back and forth with my images into um, uh, Photoshop, at least while they're raw files or or even DNG, then um, I need Photoshop CS6. I'm sort of trapped in that. I don't use video. Um, I don't think Photoshop 6, at least what we've seen so far in the beta, is as big an improvement as Lightroom 4 is over Lightroom 3. Uh, but I need to do the upgrade just for the compatibility of the RAW engine. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, that, you're, you're it, sort of stuck with that. Yeah, so that, that so you're, so you're gonna, you're gonna upgrade just to get the RAW engine. Is that, is well, that that's fair? The, that's the main thing. You know, wh- if, if you I, could get it separately, if they say, you know what, we'll, we'll let you get the RAW engine for 30 bucks, 29.95 if you just want the RAW engine, would you do that? I, you know, I'd get sucked into the whole thing, but I might not recommend that to others. I might say to others, you might consider just getting the raw engine. Now, as soon as it came out, you know, I looked at the videos and um, the, I said, ooh, ooh, I got to try the new content-aware stuff. It's, you know, content-aware move is the demo that they do, which looks amazing. To be honest, I went in and played with it probably for about an hour. Uh, I haven't used it on any of my own, you know, serious shots yet, but it wasn't quite as good as, I, as they look, make it look in the demo. Hmm. Um, so I hope, I encourage everybody to download the beta and form their own opinions. I mean, what a, you know, either the beta or when it comes out, you've got the 30-day trial. But I don't think on its own, I, I do think that ACR 7 is a huge improvement over the previous version. So um, 
you know that to me is the main that's the main benefit of the upgrade but when when you say when you say an improvement so we're talking about the algorithm that that takes the raw data that the camera's throwing at it and interprets it into something our primitive human eyes can understand right so right. what's better is it what what's better about let's say ACR1 than this next one well i think what they've done is just the the algorithms behind the sliders. So a slider is going to do something. You mm-hmm. know, it's going to go in and it's going to uh, make some change that you could probably do very carefully with curves. But they've made certain assumptions and said, you know, if I do clarity or if I do vibrance or whatever the names of these things are, they do change from time to time. Yeah. You know, what's that actually doing to the pixels in the file? Uh, because as you say, you're starting with a raw file that includes data that you can't even render on a regular monitor. Right. So they're reducing it from what's actually a high dynamic range image into something that, that fits into the uh, gamut of a screen or a print. And, um, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's a, uh, that's something that if they, if they can make it smoother like they did in Lightroom 4 and, and Photoshop CS6, that's really cool because I can now do more in Lightroom 4 I can do things that I used to have to go to Photoshop to do because they've improved that processing so much. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. The the analogy I use when, a, especially back when we were having the whole raw versus JPEG argument, was you know a raw raw data is kind of like your your counter in your kitchen full of a bunch of ingredients, right? And the JPEG is the already baked cake that's sitting on the other counter. So the raw processing engine is the the chef that's mixing everything together and putting it in the stove for a certain amount of time and, and doing all this magic in the recipe. And ch- I think upgrading that or, or improving the raw processing engine is analogous to saying, okay, well, we found out that putting too much baking soda in this doesn't quite make it taste right. So in this <laughs> next version, we're going to cut that by a third and we're yeah. going to add more of this and, and add salt to this next recipe and that's going to make it awesome. So that's that's kind of what's going on, right? Yeah, I mean, I think Lightroom Four is is brilliant, and uh, as always, take advantage of the betas and the free trials and form your own opinions. Yeah, yeah, Nicole, what about you? So on the on the raw processing side, oh, first of all, let's work backwards. So when you're submitting your your final images up to iStock Photo, and you you know that you're you've got it to the point where you feel like okay, this is a saleable image. I'm ready to click upload. And you're doing that. So walk me backwards from that. What's your workflow up to when you when you have that file on your desktop that you're ready sub- to submit into your account? Yeah, well, so after, so basically like right after they come off a card is what you're saying? So I've yeah, done my shoot. Yeah, yeah. So like from the card, just quickly, like from the card, when you basically you have raw data on the card, right? Sure. So all the way up through the baked, cooked JPEG that's going to go up to up to iStock. What, what apps are, you, are touching that data? Well, I, I use uh, import through Lightroom, and I actually convert my images to DNG on import. Mm. So, so then I have my and DNG file is digital negative, real similar to a raw file. It's just the Adobe uh, non proprietary version of it. So, mm-hmm. so I have the, so I have my DNG file, and then I go through. I do all my picks. I you know I select the images I actually want to edit. I edit them as raw files in Lightroom, and then I export them as PSDs. Okay. And then I pull them into Photoshop and I do some, you know, cloning or other, you know, adjustments that I can't do in Lightroom. And, and then I save the PS, the layered PSD and then I save a copy of it, a JPEG copy of that. And that's the file that goes up to iStock. Wonderful. Wow. And, mm. and how much time do you think you're spending uh, like average per image? Oh, that's, that's hard to say. It really kind of, it, it, uh, you know, it depends. Um, 
I try to get my images as close to perfect in camera as possible. So a lot, and most of the stuff I do for stock is very, uh, not a lot of heavy processing where I'm not stylizing it. So very clean. I would say less than five minutes for the whole process for each image, uh, maybe even a little less than that. Every once in a while I'll do focus stacking, a real kind of, not a real fancy version of focus stacking, you know, where I'll, I want a little bit more depth of field in, let's say, a food photo. So I'll, I'll take uh, one photo to get a nice shallow background, a nice blurry background, mm-hmm. and then I'll uh, move my like F11 or F16 to get more of the food in focus. I'll put those two together in Photoshop, and then I'll just use masking to pull focus back into part of the image. That's a little bit more time-consuming. But usually when I do food, I don't have, you know, 50 photos from a shoot. I have four. And so I, I can spend a little bit more time on, you know, a smaller amount of images. But whereas if I were to do a larger photo shoot with people and, and several concepts, most of the time they're going to be very clean, stocky images. So they usually don't take as long to edit those photos because they're all similar. I can batch a lot of the, you know, the, the lighting is all going to be similar. So I can batch my edits and in Lightroom at least. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like a process. So, it, so on average, how many are you are you pushing up to ice talk a week? <laughs> that's a that's a. <laughs> with, I'm trying. <laughs> the, to, I, the, the, the stock photographer stuff. laughs. She's like, <laughs> I, I have it. It kind of goes in spurts. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to push through for my entire year. I'm trying to do a thousand images this year. So some of it'll happen. You know, maybe we have year towards the last half of the year than it will be in the first half of the year. Cause I have a lot of other things. The great thing about my job with stock photography is that it's not a 40 hour a week job. It's a, you know, it's a much less than that job. <laughs> and, and, uh, cause I don't have, you know, I'm making money every day. Of course I have to maintain the, I have to continually upload photos. So, so I kind of do it in spurts. I wish I was, it was more regular than that, but I do other things like I write books and eBooks and side things here, traveling here and there. So, yeah. So it's not a regular daily, weekly thing even. You're always creating something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a definite. That's great. All right, guys, let's, let's move on to the next story. And this is about the D800, the new uh, Nikon camera that I'm lusting after that was just released a little while ago. So um, the folks over at DxO, and that's, that's the firm that rates camera sensors, they have scored the Nikon D800 sensor at 95, which is the highest mark it has ever given. And they go on to say that the sensor has no weak points. So in other words, according to them, it's perfect. And they're saying it comes as close to medium format sensors as possible with a low light score that matches the D4. Um, so Doug, I'm going to throw it to you. You are, you're a Nikon shooter and I'm sure you're, you're lusting after the D800 if you don't already have one. What do you think about this? Is, is, is the, you, you think Nikon has finally nailed it with the sensor? Well, it sounds like it. I mean, the one thing that DxO makes a good point of is that this is only the sensor. They're not mm-hmm. looking at the ergonomics of the camera. They're not looking at frame rates or anything like that. So let's not get too carried away with, with that. On the other hand, the D800 is getting pretty good marks in almost every category. Yeah. Uh, I think, you, you know, I've not seen one. I've not touched one. But for for $3,000, that's 
that's an incredible camera, I think. Yeah. And uh, I recently bought a used D3S thinking that was the best solution. And now I'm having second thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Based on no, this, yeah, we, no, were, we talked about this over lunch, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I love the D3S, but, you know, I was complaining how heavy it was, remember? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you have a D3, so you know exactly what that's like. Yeah. But this, this D800 it weighs less than the D700. Wow. Uh, it's somewhere between the D seven thousand and the and the D seven hundred, right? Yeah, it's a you know by by Nikon big camera standards, it's not big, uh, and they got an awful lot of stuff right. Uh, I think it's, I mean, it's a huge winner for them, uh, especially at that price point, and you know, relative to where. You know, I know there's the whole debate. We won't get back into it. You and Derek talking about the uh, the the 5D Mark III and the pricing and all that. Yeah, but, yeah. But I I think you know here's a camera that's five hundred dollars less than a 5D Mark II, and it's blowing it away in terms of the sensor stuff. Yeah, uh, the Mark III. Sorry. Well, you know, I'm not allowed to say anything about that or anything negative about Canon because I'll be branded a Nikon fanboy. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and you know, but, and but you and, know, I kind of uh, am. It's okay. Yeah, I know, and, and they and they have not yet tested the 5D Mark. Three, yeah. and so it's there's no no way to make a comparison, and even when they do, it's only a sensor comparison. So let's let's face it, there are a lot of other things about our cameras that are important than just the sensors. I, I would agree with that, but I would also argue that if you use the car analogy, the sensor is the engine, right? And if you've got a car that has a perfect or a near perfect engine. You can forgive a whole lot of other stuff on that car, you know. Like, okay, I don't have power windows, but look at my engine, dude. <laughs> you yeah, know? but if, if the if the tires are bald, it's not going to do any good because your tires are just going to spin. That's you true. know, that's you know, true. It's like, yeah. you know, just the, I I got into an interesting discussion this past weekend with somebody who was convinced that when you get the thirty six megapixels, it's going to outperform all the lenses. I I don't think that's true, but this person was quite convinced of that. Well, well, Nicole, is a D eight hundred and the the DXO rating of the sensor going to make you pull back over to the to the dark side? <laughs> no, <laughs> I just bought. I literally just yesterday took my five D Mark three out of the box. So, oh, congratulations! Yeah, so it's, it's, I was at Photoshop World all week, and it was sitting in a box waiting for me. And so I finally got to pull, pull it out and kind of. You obviously you know, didn't listen to the Derek Story Frederick Van conversation on Twip. Oh, I guess not. What? No, <laughs> you got to listen to the episode oh, just no. prior to this one. Episode two four seven was a special discussion between Derek Story and me on uh, Canon's Canon's thought process behind pricing the that particular camera. Oh so. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there was some uproar. Maybe well. you know. I mean, you already have it, so you know what? I would suggest don't listen to it. So. No, I'm not going to. Well, it's, I'm not going to return it, you know, because it costs more than it, you know, what than people expect it to. Right. That was that was the gist of it. It was, you yeah. Know, why why did they price it a little higher? And you know, the, it was interesting because a lot of comments have come in on the blog post and on Google Plus from folks that are saying that are attributing the price change to the the weakening of the dollar. You know, basically mm. the dollar went down like what almost twenty five percent. Um, in the time span between when the when the the previous Canon body and this Canon body came mm-hmm. out, so that's where the money is. It, it yeah. hasn't really gotten more expensive. It just got more expensive expensive to us poor Americans. So, well, you know, the, the way I see it is, I'll probably have this camera for two or three years as my main body. Yeah, that's if it, especially if they continue the life cycle of the of the the five D Mark whatever you know, and the similar camera because I'm really happy with that that series. I really like it. It works for my style of shooting. So, you know, not that there's a requirement that I feel to upgrade every time they come out with a new one. 
it's kind of fun when you can, yeah. but I don't expect to actually upgrade again until they come out with the, you know, if it's two or three years down the road, unless of course I need, uh, I have my needs change as far as photography goes or something unique comes out that I find I can take advantage of with my shooting style, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean, you know, I think, I think in the end, I mean, this is part of your business. So you need Absolutely. to have the right tool to get, and it's, it pays for itself. So for, oh, yeah. for the hobbyist that's just like out there, like, you know what? I need to, I need to upgrade my camera because I heard about it on this podcast or I read mm-hmm. about it in this magazine and they're not really generating any revenue from it. It's a different conversation than someone like you that, mm-hmm is shooting for a thousand images a year and they all need to be perfect because people are going to be buying them. So it's a, it's a different discussion completely. I think you're right. Yeah. There's, you know, if I did this as a hobby, it'd be different. I may not even have, you know, I, I have more cameras than I need right now. Just, you know, I have a backup. I have my Mark two now. I have my five to Mark three and then I have a 60 D for my time-lapse stuff. I wouldn't have all that if I was just doing this as, you know, as a hobby, Mm -hmm. one camera is really enough and there's no need to upgrade every time a new one comes out. But that, but then I say that and then I always find it uh, funny that a lot of my friends who are just, they're photographers, but they're not like full-time like I am. They tend to have more gear than I do (laughs) as a (laughs) full-time photographer or more lenses at least, which is usually, you know, it's, it's always better to invest in lenses than in camera bodies. Of course, it comes to that time when it's good to upgrade your body, but it's also lenses are good as you know, they'd last longer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, speaking of that, Doug, you, you and I spoke about um, a f- upcoming show that we're going to do. I think that's going to be focused on used gear and, yeah. and just, you know, the thought process, thought processes behind swapping out your gear and, instead of, or basically foregoing buying new stuff every year, every two years, and instead buying used gear, which will hold its, its value a little bit better. So, uh, yeah, definitely. We'll we'll keep an eye out for that. Do you have anything you want to you want to throw on that to tease that well, discussion? Just as I was listening to you and Nicole talking about it, you know, all of us I think have a lot more money tied up in glass than we do in camera bodies, uh, and we. But yet on the podcasts and Google Plus and everywhere else, when a new body comes out, that's the big excitement. It's ironic because. Um, you know, it's really the it's really the glass that drives it. I I do replace bodies every couple of years, or I upgrade to a new one. But I'm still using the lenses I bought when I first got it. I mean, I've still got lenses back from the 1970s yeah. that, that I use, and um, not not very often, but I have them. And you know, that's a that's that's a I don't know that's something fascinating that we're so hung up on the bodies and yet it's relatively small part of what we invest in. Isn't that funny? Yeah, because to my knowledge, the properties of light and the physics of light haven't changed much since the seventies, right? <laughs> so, not, not around here. Anyway. Not, not, not around this part of the universe. I don't know. Maybe some other dimension. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's it's all interesting stuff. I love that. I'm looking forward to that conversation, Doug. It's going to be good to just sort of talk through because I want to talk about bodies, it's, it's, lenses, it's lighting, all that stuff. And and I think the used gear is going to come up in one of our user questions too. Oh yeah. I have yeah. I have a feeling. Yeah. Totally. All right, guys. Um, got a little special uh, interview to to stick into the show right here. Mr. Alan Melzer contacted me a while ago. He's a he's a TWIP listener, but he's also a lawyer. And he he and I spoke at length about the legalities around licensing your images and copyright and all that stuff. It sort of goes beyond the the discussion I had with a while back with Jack Resnicki. So this is a really interesting interview, and I think if you are anyone that puts an image anywhere online. 
online or is thinking about selling your images in any way, definitely give this interview a listen. This is Mr. Alan Melzer. Okay, I've got a very special interview for you today. A uh, gentleman uh, contacted me online to to uh, basically give us his thoughts on the whole intellectual property confusion that seems to be out there. Lots of people don't know what intellectual property is, what is, what are patent trolls, what is a patent, all that good stuff. So Alan Melzer, he's, a, he's an intellectual property attorney. He contacted me and offered to offer his knowledge to the TWIP universe. So Alan, welcome to This Week in Photo. Thank you. All right, it's good to have you. So, all right, let let's let's just start off with some background on who you are and, you know, maybe a little bit of of why you can speak to this topic. Okay. Um I've uh I've got really two backgrounds. One is in the photography area and video and the other is in the intellectual property area. Mm-hmm. Uh like many of your listeners, I started in photography when I was in seventh grade and the first time i saw the the print come out of the dark room i was hooked uh did the usual things with the yearbook photography the newspaper and then in in college i discovered uh, motion pictures hmm. took a number of courses in college and did a documentary while i was in college on a theater group that i graduated from uh university of pennsylvania with an engineering degree in electrical engineering. Uh, From there, I went to law school, and I continued my interest in motion pictures. And and in in that day, I I would say I'm probably the same age as Rick Salmon. So I've got a lot of history. So in that day, it was all film. It wasn't uh, uh, digital at that point. So I made a film during the uh, Vietnam War, a November moratorium, and then uh, an airport film when you could roam the airport any way you wanted and nobody bothered you. Uh, <laughs> you could actually bring there, a I, camera into the airport? <laughs> oh, you could go right on the tarmac. You could walk out the door where people boarded at any time of the day and just walk around on the tarmac and nobody bothered you. Um, from there, I, I still had the burning interest in, in film and photography, so I went to BU in their master's program in cinematography. Mm-hmm. Uh, after that, I, um, I said, well, I don't know whether I want to be a filmmaker or a lawyer. So I took the, some people don't agree, but I think I took the easy way out and became uh, a lawyer. And because of my engineering background, I always had an interest in intellectual property. And in those days, it was in its infancy. Uh, and so it was a real esoteric specialty at that point. So uh, initially I was at Fort Monmouth in New Jersey at the Army Materiel Command, learned my basic patent law there, then went on to Xerox in California and uh, counseled their microelectronics center and was there for the early days of PARC, wow. Palo Alto Research Center. Yeah, Xerox PARC, yeah. Yeah. And then after that, uh, went into private practice and have been there, been in private practice in Washington for about the last 30 years. Wow. So you know you, you know your way around a law or two. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And um, I'd say around 2008, I rediscovered photography. Uh, 
because up until that point I was doing uh, I transitioned to video from from motion picture film and started doing documentaries for um, uh, for nonprofit groups and then I rediscovered in 2008 I rediscovered photography and digital photography and I was just blown away with uh, with what you could do because I left photography when it was still film and so I hadn't been there for the early days of the development of digital and wow. so so you left the, you left the kid when it was uh when it was a teenager and came back and he's a middle-aged right. man now <laughs> after after it grew up and got some sense <laughs> yeah. that's, that's so great. um and in my practice i've uh, been exposed to all the areas patents trademarks copyrights i primarily spend most of my time in the patent area and in that regard I've had an opportunity to represent some companies in the photography area, in the video area. So I, um, I felt at my age that it was time for me to, to give back and uh, do something that I really enjoy. And this type of thing combines both my interest in photography with my experience in the law. Oh, that's perfect. Well, the, I can tell you, me speaking selfishly, I definitely need some schooling on this stuff because, you know, as you know, on the show, we talk about just the law as it as it surrounds photographers and photography and what you can and can't do and what is and what isn't yours and all that stuff. And it's still blurry to me. You know, I, I, I had Jack Resnicki on talking about copyright and just just like three, four minutes into the interview, I was like, oh man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you know, All these images I have that aren't protected, that are on Flickr and all this stuff. And we can create, like you're saying, with the, with the advent of digital technology, we can create some amazing looking images and share them while we're driving. I can take a picture of something great and share it while I'm at a traffic light if I want to. But if, after I do that, what's the law around it? Is it mine? You know, that right. sort of thing. Yeah, and I've read his book. It's a really good good read. It's an easy read, and he warns you whenever there's legal jargon. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it is a really good book. I was looking at my bookshelf to see where it is because I need to pull it out again. Um, so let's let's jump into it. Intellectual property, you know. So let's let's first by let's start by defining what it is. I mean, is it property that can only be owned by intellectuals or what, <laughs> what is intellectual property? <laughs> if you judge by Hollywood, it may not be the case, <laughs> but, um, well, intellectual property in its, in its most basic form is art is creations of the mind. It can be inventions. It can be, um, literary expressions and it's, there are two types of property. There's, a, there's intangible property and real property. Now, real property is land. Intangible property is something that's more ephemeral. So the types of intellectual property, and once again, it's, it's a creation of the mind. So anything that the mind can create is intellectual property. Hmm. And the types of intellectual property are patents, trademarks, copyrights, designs, and trade secrets. And um, <clears throat> those are the, the basic forms, and that is the, the sphere of intellectual property. Okay, so then, okay, so looking at, you say anything that the mind can create. So I would argue, and I'm arguing with a, with a lawyer here, so I'm in trouble. <laughs> so I would argue that the mind creates everything, right? So 
everything is intellectual property because my mind, the minds created the Mac, minds created a photo that I take, minds create you know some uh, an email or a poem that I write or anything, right? Right, and those can all be protected. Those are all forms of intellectual property. When you compose an email, when you take a photo, when you do a painting, when you uh, create a stage production, a play, those mm-hmm. are all forms of intellectual property. Now, within the groups that I've mentioned, they all have specific meanings. So, um, for example... If you want me to go into this, I can tell you the differences between a patent, a trademark, and a copyright. Yeah, yeah, that would be I great. Think, yeah, yeah. We're, I know we're going to get to that later, but I, I want to hear about that now. What is the, what's the difference between those? Okay. A, a patent is a property right that's granted by the government for an invention. And the right that you get when if you're able to obtain a patent is the right to exclude others from making, using, offering for sale, or selling the invention that's covered by the patent. Mm -hmm. A trademark, on the other hand, is a word, a name, a symbol, or a device that is used in trade to indicate the source of the goods or services. Mm. And that's the purpose of the trademark. The copyright is a form of protection provided to authors of original works of authorship. And those could be literary, they could be dramatic, musical, artistic, uh, both published and unpublished. So those are the, the three basic categories of intellectual property. Great. Okay, got it. So those all fit into the, the overall umbrella of intellectual property. So then that's it. that segues into the, the photographers, you know, both amateur and pro. Let's, let's take them both separately. So you're, you're an amateur or an advanced amateur photographer, and I, I use the term amateur as in someone who's not deriving their primary source of income from taking pictures. So why should they care about intellectual property if you're an amateur photographer? Okay. When dealing, whether it's an amateur or a professional, there's really two aspects uh, to the law that are for consideration. One is the aspects of law that, that apply to the creation of the photo and when and when you can't take photos and things like that, the privacy issues and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm going to cover today, but... The other aspect of it is after you've taken the photograph, how do you protect it? And that's the aspect that I'm going to deal with today. Great. Now, from a practical standpoint, when you say amateur, are you saying amateur in the true sense of the word and that they're doing it for the love of it and not for profit? Correct. Yeah, for the love right. of. Right, for the love of. So for, a, for an amateur, they have much more leeway because from a practical standpoint, a company that that has something that a photo taken by an amateur might infringe is typically not going to go after them. For example, when an amateur creates a slideshow and uses commercial music, the chances of them running into any problem are, are non-existent. Mm-hmm. Or if an amateur takes a picture that includes a logo from let's say a McDonald's or a, a well-known logo, 
like an air freshener in your car, uh, the chances are nothing's going to happen. Now, where the amateur can run into issues, which would be similar to what a professional will run into, is when they start to post them on the Internet and they start to uh, uh, promote their photos through a website or through Flickr or through something like that. So an amateur, uh, like a professional, is concerned if they're going to use something that belongs to someone else, such as a logo, as I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. In certain situations, uh, I'm going to segue into the other law just to bring it into context, but an amateur, as well as a professional, is allowed to go out and photograph anything that's in the public. Where the professional runs into an issue is where a locale, for example, New York City, has ordinances that control a professional taking pictures in New York. Mm -hmm. The amateur is not plagued by this, by this uh, issue. Um, the other thing is where, where a professional would take pictures that would include a logo uh, or a, a, an architectural rendition that is on private property where it's considered to be uh, something that you can't take care of. For, for example, it doesn't apply in the United States, but the Louvre has specific, uh, France has specific laws against uh, taking pictures of the Louvre mm -hmm. for profit without permission. So an amateur really doesn't have too much to worry about and from a practical standpoint can't run into to trouble. An interesting thing is that an amateur, when they take pictures of their family, the person who takes the picture is the author. And so they own the copyright to that photo. Right. And it's entirely possible that uh, at some point in the future, should that photo be sold or uh, otherwise exploited by people in the family, then the issues that are similar to what a professional would face could arise. But in a general rule, amateurs don't have much to worry about. And it's only when they start to exploit a photo on the Internet and it starts to dilute a protectable interest owned by a third party that they run into trouble. So it sounds like an interweaving of intellectual property and copyright when you get into that that area, and then you know, and of course all the stuff we talked about with Jack Resnicki with regard to model releases and all that stuff. So you sounds like if I take a photo of say a family member, I am the intellectual property owner. However, that person that I took a photo of, if they haven't given me explicit permission to use that, I I may own it, but I can't really use it. Correct. You can use it if, if you're not going to charge for it. Got it. Got the it. minute you start to charge, then you've got to have a model release. Okay, gotcha. And that's what the professional photographer uh, runs into. Mm -hmm. There's much greater restriction regarding what they can photograph. Uh, and you run into this all the time when you go into museums or you go to zoos. There's always a special category for the professional. The amateur, they say, for example, in Washington, we have uh, uh, the baseball team. And when you go to the to the uh, we have the Nationals baseball team, when you go to one of their games, if you go to their website, they tell the amateur 
how long the lens can be. Mm. It can't be greater <laughs> than seven inches. That's crazy. That's crazy. Is, but Canon came out with their new 70 to 300 <laughs> L lens, which is less than seven inches. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, that, that was written by somebody who doesn't understand, you know, advanced photography optics, right? Right. They figure if you got a big lens, then you're going to be taking professional pictures. So. Exactly. Well, he's, wow, that's a, that's a big camera. You must be a really good photographer. <laughs> right. That's right. I love when people say that to me. Yeah. When they see a photo I've taken and they say how great it is and they go, wow, what camera do you have? Exactly. That's because you got a better camera than I do. Exactly. It's like, tell, it's like telling a chef, wow, this tastes delicious. What stove did you use? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Same so, thing. So what about, what about professionals? So we touched a little bit on professionals. How does, how does all this stuff affect the person that's out there taking photos you know, with, the, with the explicit purpose? Per- purchase or purpose of making money from the photo well the the professional is under much greater restriction both in what they can photograph without permission Mm -hmm. and then how they can exploit what they photograph and if you're taking pictures of people now i'll carve out the exception early and then we'll talk about the problems that you might have if you're if you're going to exploit the photos you make certainly photojournalists have a much wider range of what they can do, uh, especially when when it's considered to be news. So where they may take photos of people who are in the public, they don't have to get their permission to put it into a a newspaper or uh, on a TV show or a a news show on TV or something like that. Now, the professional who's doing it to take photos and then exploit those to make a living, as I said, they're under greater restriction regarding what they can photograph without permission. And if they're going to take pictures of individuals or small groups of individuals, they need model releases. And generally, they're going to want to to uh, perfect the copyright. Now, under the copyright law, the minute you create the the image, where the minute you've taken the photograph and put it into some permanent form, whether it be in digital form or an actual print, we say that the copyright obtains and the author is the photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but once they want to start exploiting that, that photograph and they want to protect themselves, they're going to want to register that copyright. And they register with the federal government and is a modest charge for doing it. I think in most cases, a photographer, if they're highly skilled, will be able to decipher the form to fill out. And if they have trouble, they can contact the copyright office and get help. But generally, it's it's not a difficult form to fill out. And it's a modest fee. I think it's thirty five dollars. Now, Alan, would you, considering all this stuff, and I know a lot of photographers are thinking, wow, this is a lot of details, and, you know, I just want to take pictures. You know, what, if they want to engage with an attorney to, or lawyer to help them understand and whatever their particular vocation of photography is, say they're, you know, a part-time guy that I like to take pictures and go, go on photo walks, but on weekends I do the occasional wedding and, you know, if they have a, maybe a semi-complex situation like that 
and they decide to seek out legal advice just to make sure all bases are covered. How do they do that? And what are, what are they looking to pay? Or like, what are they going to pay? Right. There's a lot of a lot of ways to approach this, and it's a it's an old law and it, it's an old rule in the in the law that an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. And I guess the corollary is a photographer who thinks he can do legal work has a fool for a client. So, so I think the most difficult thing is to find an attorney who's going to be sympathetic to your situation. And by that, I mean somebody who's not going to charge you a lot to do something that's rather simple. And so uh, let's take the case where you're a part-time wedding photographer. You've got to create a contract. So you could go to the, um, was it the WIPPI? Mm-hmm. Yeah, WPPI. They've got model um, agreements. If you want to engage an attorney to keep your costs down, you should take something like that. And if you can read it, if they've written it in a, in a language that's understandable, uh, then make a list of the things that you feel are important in the contract that you you want to ultimately use to cover when you do a wedding. By taking those two things to an attorney, it'll take an attorney, since they charge by by time, uh, it'll take them less time to review and comment. And then once you've gotten that contract, uh, you can use it uh, over and over again. So, and And it shouldn't cost more than... Um, well, it depends on what kind of attorney you go to, but maybe $500, maybe le- less than that. And depending on how, how complex you want to make the agreement, the cost is going to go up. But, but generally, you're making an investment similar to investing in a tripod. Yeah. A tripod turns out to be an important piece of equipment, but people don't think of it that way. But it's the same type of thing. You're investing in an agreement that you can use. Uh, for all the work that you do, and you've made that investment, and it hasn't cost you a, a tremendous amount of money. What about the photographers that say, "Wow, five hundred bucks! I could use that towards a new lens." I'm gonna instead of taking Alan's advice, I am going to Google wedding contract and find one and just put my name at the top of it. What are the risks involved with that? Uh, the risks are as anything that you Google; it's where you end up. Mm-hmm. and what type of document you're going to get. Uh, that's why I recommend one of the organizations that deal with the type of photography that you're interested in. For example, the, um, the American Society of Media Photographers have an excellent section on, on copyright. And a lot of these, these organizations and groups have sample documents that you can use and feel comfortable using them. Mm-hmm. It's when you go to some other site that you don't know who it is. It may be an attorney that's trying to promote themselves, or it may be someone who's entered a, a group and said, yeah, this is a contract I've used and I haven't had any trouble with it. Um, you're really most concerned about what the rights and obligations are. And uh, under those circumstances, you have to be careful as to what the source of the sample agreement is. Got it. Got it. Interesting. All right. One other one other question I had on here on the list here is um, about patents. You know, we, we talk a lot about patent trolls and, you know, in a negative context that these are these are, you know, nefarious people that are out there 
filing patents so that one day and sitting on them so that one day if somebody infringes on it, they can pounce and have a big payday. Can you define what a patent troll is, you know, from a, you know, from the horse's mouth? What is a patent troll? And are they, are they necessarily bad? And, and just sort of demystify that. Okay. A, a patent troll is a person or company who buys and enforces patents against one or more alleged infringers. And typically they have no intention of manufacturing, developing, or marketing the patent invention, and they're characterized by the use of aggressive patent lawsuits. Mm, okay. Okay. So these are the people that are, they they may have a patent for, say, the, I'm just pulling this out of the air, for the, the technology behind the JPEG algorithm, and they're not they're not going to make any image processing software they're just going to sit on it and wait for companies like adobe to incorporate it and when they do they pull in the the patent lawyers and go get get paid correct uh yeah uh but what what typically happens is especially in the high technology area it costs a lot of money to get the patent initially and what the patent troll is looking for is a company that's on hard times where has gone bankrupt and has a patent portfolio that they, they can pick up very inexpensively. Oh. And patent lawsuits are, are very expensive. In today's market, you're talking a million, two million dollars for a full-blown patent suit. And depending on the complexity of the technology and the number of patents involved, it can be more than that. So, uh, but, but, I read something very interesting about Apple, that they um, joined forces with a patent troll called, um, the name escapes me now, it was um, something, Digivice or something like that, uh, where the patent patent troll contacted Apple and said, we're going to sue you on the smartphones. We have a whole host of patents that cover it. So what, what, what Apple did was enter into a cross-license with them and, th- and, and then had the patent troll go out and fight their battles for them. Hmm. So, pa- so Apple didn't have to go out and do that. So that's a, that's a novel use of the patent troll that had not been done before. Yeah. I have no idea. That was very interesting what you said earlier about how the patent troll – entity will in essence it, lo- it sounded like a little a lot like nature like say in the ocean where the predators look for wounded or otherwise sick fish to eat you know before they go after the healthy ones so they look the patent troll is going to look for companies that can't afford a legal defense uh and threaten them with these million dollar lawsuits in hopes that they'll just settle for half that or something uh, is that is that a good characterization yes it and actually it mixes both ways because the patent troll is looking for wounded companies to buy the patents cheap which they will then go out and and file multiple lawsuits against companies of all sizes but they'll typically go after the smaller weaker companies first to get them to settle and then when they go to the larger companies they'll say we've already had Seven or eight companies take licenses. Jeez. Well, this this sounds like I mean this. It sounds like it's not a secret, right? I mean, it sounds like this is a wide, a widely known problem 
are yeah. are there any any is there any movement to get this rectified or is there any way that we're going to be able to fix this or is it just going to go on like this well it's going to go on until the congress does something about it but at this point on the flip side of it it's a way for for example let's say there's a company that has some patents that dominate a technology mm-hmm. and they can't afford to uh to file a lawsuit they could associate with a patent troll and many times the patent trolls are are uh investment companies uh or companies that are set up expressly for monetizing the patents and therefore get investors to put money in to fund the lawsuits so a small company could sell a piece of the interest and and what's unique about these uh patent trolls is that they the attorneys who handle the cases for them don't get paid until their success mm. so they they only need to pay the expenses and then once there's been success then they divide up the profits but on the side that says it's a good thing it's a way to to exploit a patent and monetize it um, even though there's no product got it got it all right, let's 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 talk about some myths around intellectual in, intellectual property and sort of have you clarify and rectify, you know, this stuff. So, if you at the top of your head, could you list like say, I don't know, 3 or 5, 3 to 5 common misconceptions with regard to intellectual property and and set the set the record straight? Yeah, I, I, what I'll do is I'll try to go I'll give some from copyright, some from trademark, some from patent. Okay. Um, now, one that applies to all is the improper use of the, the various symbols. You've seen the circle with the R, the circle with the C. Yep. Um, and then uh, uh, the TM and SM. A copyright uses a circle with the C and... Into, it, it, since the law was passed, I think it was 1976, the requirement to use the circle with the C is no longer there. So just because you haven't marked your your um, uh, photographs with a, a copyright notice somewhere doesn't mean that they're not copyrighted. Mm-hmm. But there is an advantage to putting the world on notice that it is copyrighted because it will discourage the copying, but it's not a requirement. The circle with the R means that you have a registered trademark with the federal government, and you can only use that when you actually have it. Uh, But if you have a trademark that you're using every day, and I'm sure you've seen this, before you get the registration, you can mark it TM for trademark or SM for service mark. So, for example, a McDonald's clearly has a circle with an R, but sometimes they'll introduce new marks and let's say that they've come up with a, a restaurant concept that they've given a name to. They might use an, a, an SM, a service mark, if they're going to associate with that. Um, with that, they're going to also give out unique products that have names. They're going to use a TM, and then that puts the world on notice that they regard those marks as trademarks mm-hmm. to identify the source of the goods and services. Yep. Now, in the, in the trademark area, some people think that registering a company name with the state or a domain name on the Internet 
is the same as having a registered trademark, and that's not the case. Um, a trademark can only be protected and registered with the federal government. Uh, anything short of that, at best, you have what we call a common law trademark, and that's only enforceable in the area where you actually have it, the geographic area. So just because you, you, you register your name and you get a unique name registered in the state where you have your business or you get a, a, you get a, a domain name available to you, that doesn't act the same as a, as a trademark. On the copyright area, some people think that if you acknowledge the author or if you don't charge for it or you copy only a small portion or to get a little esoteric, you change Pantone colors, mm -hmm. uh, that you're not going to infringe a copyright. But that's not the case. It's really the quality of what you've appropriated rather than the quantity. And the thing about copyright which distinguishes it from patent is that the copyright does not protect the underlying idea. Mm -hmm. So you could have two photographs of Washington Monument and they would not be infringements. <clears throat> Whereas in patents, you're actually covering the underlying idea. The copyright only protects the expression of the idea. Whereas mm -hmm. the patent protects the idea itself. Now, on the patent side, some people think that if they have a patent, that allows them to practice the invention. And that's not the case. The only thing that the law grants under the patent is that you have the right to exclude others from making, using, selling, offering for sale of the, of the product that's covered in the patent. Okay. And one way to, to understand this is that you could get a patent on an improvement. And someone else has a patent that dominates what you've done. And I think the simplest example was one I learned in law school where a guy comes up with a patent for a pail that'll hold some liquid, and he gets a patent on it. Then years later, someone comes up with the idea of putting a handle on that pail, and she gets a, a, a patent on that improvement. Well, when you go to try to sell the pails with handles – you're still going to infringe the patent on the pale. Jeez. And so that's why just because you have a patent doesn't mean that you can practice what's in it. It only means you can prevent others from doing it. Got it. It's a blocker. Right. Okay. And those are, you know, some, some misconceptions. Mis these are the most prominent myths in, in the various areas of intellectual property. That's great. That's awesome. This has been uh, you know, very educational. Again, my head is about to explode. You know, <laughs> with basic basically when I have these kinds of conversations, it just lets me know that hey, there's there's uh, a lot of ice below the waterline with that iceberg. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, I think it pays to to get yourself educated and talk to people that that actually do this kind of thing for a living if you're in any way you know, concerned about this stuff. So, you know, that said, what are some resources that photographers can use to learn more about, you know, intellectual property, patents, trademarks, and that sort of thing? Well, certainly Wikipedia has some great articles on it. As I mentioned before, the American Society of Media Photographers, mm -hmm. uh, their website is really good in terms of uh, copyright. Uh, the Patent and Trademark Office 
has some excellent articles on on patent law and trademark law, and they very they have an interactive site that allows you to learn how to use the forms. I, and the Copyright Office similarly has that type of thing. Uh, the only precaution I would give is patents are a really unique animal. I call patents the ultimate in nitpicking. So mm-hmm. while trademark and copyright, you, yeah, you can go and fill out the form as a layperson and feel, feel fairly comfortable, I wouldn't advise that in the patent area because in patents – your whole property right is defined by a sentence or a group of sentences that are at the end of the written description of the patent. And that's a very uh, esoteric practice to cre- be able to create these, what, what are called claims, uh, to protect the property right. Whereas in trademark and copyright, what you have is in a more tangible form. Um, the International Trademark Association has some excellent advice. American Intellectual Property Association. And NAPP, of course, whereas Nikki is, has some excellent videos there. Yeah. Um, Amazon, if you do a search on intellectual property, you'll find some excellent books. And another site that I've really enjoyed is Alltop, A-L-L-T-O-P.com. And you just put in intellectual property or patents or trademarks, whatever you're interested in, and they'll direct you to the most popular sites that deal with that subject matter. Yeah. And, of course, the iTunes store has apps for the iPhone and uh, the uh, iPad that um, that cover the basics of intellectual property. Hmm. Wow. There's an app for that, huh? Right. That's right. <laughs> now, what about you? If if folks want to contact you or or see, you know, what you're working on, are you online anywhere? Or are you just sort of, you know, well, you, you kind of come up when people people ring the bell for intellectual property? Right. My my firm site is jhip.com. That's the uh, law practice site. We're a boutique intellectual property firm in Washington D.C. Uh, and we cover all aspects of patents, trademark, copyrights, trade secrets, confining everything to the intellectual property area. And I have a site that's under construction now where I show some of my photographs called melserphotography.com. And I'm in the process of, of formalizing that site to make it look more professional. <laughs> Wonderful. What was, what was that URL again? Melser, M-E-L-S-E-R, photography, one word, dot com. Got it. Got it. Excellent. Well, Alan, thanks for uh, for taking the time this morning slash afternoon to chat with me about this stuff. And uh, you, you've given me a headache now. So, <laughs> Well... <laughs> in a good way, you know, it's good to uh, to know where the where the the voids are that you need to fill in. And intellectual property, like we were saying, intellectual property, trademarks, patents, all this stuff is is an important part of being a photographer. If you you know if you don't understand what you're what you're exposing yourself to, you can't you can't safeguard against it. Correct. Especially in today's world. Especially in today's world. Yeah, there, there are patent trolls out there swimming around for the folks that have that kind of problem. But, you know, on the, on the creative side, it pays to understand the law, I think, to understand how to protect yourself and what you can and can't do with the images that you take. 
So, yeah, and there's there's really some simple guidelines. It's like that old commercial for the Fram filter. You can pay me now or pay me later. <laughs> but I'm going to get paid, right? I think what, what, what you really need to do is to find an attorney who's not going to say to you, you can't do this, you can't do that. It's to give you the guidance to allow you to do what you want to do and, and protect you at the same time. So along with that 24 to 70, the 7200, and that full-frame camera in your bag, you should also have a lawyer. <laughs> so, all right, Alan, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Okay, that was Alan Melzer. Um, we will link to his various online presences in the show notes for this episode. But now it is time for some listener Q&A. This is the segment where our guests answer questions that have come in via our Facebook group, Twitter, or our Google Plus page. Question number one. Nicole, I'm going to throw it over to you. Yeah, sure. It's from Adam Silver. Uh, Adam Silver asks, my workhorse has been the 40D with 20D as a backup. I do have experience with the 5D too, and I love that camera. The 40D is long in the tooth, and I'm really tired of the crop sensor. I really want a full frame. So should I go with the 5D Mark II or the 5D Mark III? Save the $1,000 and buy glass or jump to the Mark III now? Um, that's, that's a tough one, a, isn't it? That's a really, really tough one. Yeah. Because I will say, though, you know, the 5D Mark II, it's a great, great, great camera. Mm -hmm. And it kind of depends on what, what you shoot. You know, like I honestly uh, – well, I plan, on I plan on keeping my Mark III for – as long as it'll last, you know, as long as I really feel like it's really doing a good thing for me. Yeah. Um, I have a, actually a used 5D Mark II, which is kind of part of why I wanted to get a, a new 5D Mark III because I don't know exactly what the, my used camera was put through and how long I have a life I have left on it because it wasn't in my hands the whole time. So, yeah, that's a tough one. Like if, if you could use, let's say, let's say you photograph something like sports or something where there's a lot of action, you probably would want the Mark III because you're going to take advantage of the, the really updated or the upgraded uh, autofocus on the camera. Um, but, I, you know, I haven't really used the Mark III enough. I just have had it for a day to give any solid advice other than what you'd read in a review or something. So, but then again, like I just said earlier, you know, you know, $1,000, go towards a new piece of glass. Yeah. Um, it's, you, know, you know what Derek, Derek said in that interview that, or that the discuss, discussion we had was he is foregoing, I don't know if it's still, this was the case earlier this week. He may have changed his mind, but he said he's going to forego the 5D Mark III, keep his Mark II. Um, or he said he he sent his Mark II off to the to uh, to Canon to have it cleaned, and he's going to save that money and buy glass instead. Yeah. So he's basically doing what Adam Silver is thinking of doing. And I don't I don't know I don't have the right decision or the right answer to this either. Either, but it depends on a lot of things like your budget, right? Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. I don't think I don't think you if you have the money I don't think you could go wrong with a Mark III because it's the future, right? It's yeah. not like you're buying something that is going to be antiquated. This thing is going to last you for a long time. So if you can jump into it and it's not going to kill you and your kids aren't going to be like eating bread for the next week, you can <laughs> you know, you can if you can pull it off then you know why not do it because you know it's it's buying into the future. But if you if it, if you think it's going to sting in any way, you know, then it's not a bad idea to just save that money and buy a Mark II. Uh, yeah, I think the new Mark IIs are they're pretty discounted especially compared to the Mark Threes. So, if you're planning on buying a new one especially, you're going to get you'll be happy with a 5D Mark II. Um it, you know, it's 
but you know, I'll even say when I, you know, I put thirty five hundred dollars down on a new Mark III, and it's a, it's a business thing for me. It's like I I, I need to kind of keep up with it. I I know I needed a new uh, a new solid uh, body and a second full frame because I only had one full frame, and I always want to have that that backup. Yeah. Um. But the, I tell you, the thing that kept going through my head is actually something that I've heard David Dushman say. Um. Is you know like why spend money on gear when you can spend that money on traveling, you know, cause yeah. he said that in an interview I did with him. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of, you know, it just, it ringed in my brain when I'm spending, you know, all this money on a, on a camera body and I'm like, man, $3,500. Yeah. I could, I could be in Madagascar. Trip, I can be in right Ethiopia. <laughs> so, and you know, not that I won't, not that I'm like missing out on opportunities, but it's, it's a lot of money. It's, and it's, it's serious money. Even for someone who, you know, I'm a professional, I'm not like rolling in dough every night, but yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good investment, but I think you know. I would say the fight. You you won't be unhappy with a five D Mark II. Uh, so yeah. it's really it's it's really like a, a money thing, you know. Yeah. Hey, a couple <laughs> weeks ago, the Mark II was state of the art. So yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> so, hey, Doug, what, what do you what do you say? What would you say to Adam Silver? Hey, do you have a, a a binary choice for him? Should he should he get the Mark II or Mark III, or is it not that I- easy? I always have opinions, you know. That's that's why I'm here. Uh, I I'm going to assume he's on a budget. Otherwise, he would have upgraded to a full frame camera already. He's got a 40D and a 20D. Mm-hmm. Um, he loves. He says he really wants to go to a full frame camera. And if it were me, uh, and I had a budget, I would definitely get a used 5D Mark II because I could get that for probably not much more than two thousand dollars in the next couple of months. Mm. You get it for less than that. I bought yeah. my. Five D Mark II so, for like twelve hundred dollars, and that was a year ago. Twelve hundred a year yeah. ago? Seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that that just, just Nicole. That means there's something. There is something seriously wrong with. No, you there's not. It was yet. just from my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I got a good deal. <laughs> but the, the the fact is that yeah, I mean the guy's going to save at least fifteen hundred dollars, and if you, you know, if you haven't shot with a full frame camera, um, it's very different. And you're hopefully you've got glass that's full frame glass instead of just crop sensor only. Yeah. And you know you're gonna you're gonna hopefully you're a good enough photographer that you're gonna see quite a difference in your photographs. Yeah. And I don't see why you wouldn't save that fifteen hundred dollars plus, uh, and you know save it, spend it on glass, spend it on travel or something. But that's definitely what I would do. I like that. I, yeah, I, save I, that. I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't get a. I wouldn't get a new 5D Mark II, but I certainly wouldn't go all the way to Mark III if you've never had full frame. Yeah, save save that money, and instead of upgrading your sensor, upgrade your glass and get faster glass, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. He could always try selling his old cameras. I don't know how much. Probably wouldn't get a ton for the, those two, but, you know, five $600 for the pair, unless he's sentimental and wants to keep them. <laughs> but. Right. You can always try that. Yeah, yeah. All right, question Question number two is from Gustav Bergman. Uh, Doug, I'm going to throw it over to you. You want to take this one? <laughs> I knew I'd get that. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a long one. It is uh, a long one. <laughs> I think I think I better, I better read it, though, because we're going to get into trouble on this. Yep. Sometimes, uh, Gustav says, sometimes I use a lot of fill flash when shoot, shooting events. One problem I have with this is that I have to go down to very small apertures to avoid overexposure and lose the possibility to have a short depth of field. Do any of you use ND filters for fill flash to widen aperture, decrease depth of field? And do you have any tips of your own? How about many variable ND filters now available? Well, th- there's something peculiar about this because, um, uh, you know, you, you can always turn your flash down. So there's, it's not sure why he's getting overexposure from his fill flash. Mm. Uh, you know, he's got a, this question of balancing the available light with the fill flash. 
So I think we're, we might be better off answering a different question here because I don't think we understand this one. Okay. Um, I think um, I don't use ND filters specifically with fill flash because I can always dial down my flash. Right. So the answer to that is no. Uh, do I use variable ND filters? Yes, I have a, um, a Singray Vary ND filter that I use and love. And um, I also have a 10-stop ND filter that I use as well as a regular, you know, like a 0.9 3-stop. Well, uh, maybe he's talking about competing with the sun because he said he's, he's using a lot of fill flash and shooting events. Maybe he's outdoors in the mm-hmm. sun, you know, and trying to compete and fill in those shadows in, oh, I see in the mean. sun outside. Yeah, the, 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 the problem is going to be, of course, if he, if, he, if he brings down the sun, he's bringing down the flash too. Right. Right? Yeah. So if he pops an ND filter on his lens, he's darkening everything. He's not going to change the balance between the flash and the sun. Um, if the flash won't give you enough, uh, you need to look at reflector. Of course, you can, uh, you can always dial down your um, shutter speed. You can go to a faster shutter speed. He doesn't say what he's using, but if you can go to high-speed sync, sometimes you can go to very high shutter speeds and then use that flash uh, as a real fill flash in bright sun. Yeah. That's probably what I mean, the issue is, just because, you know, it's like we don't know all the details here. So it's, if you can do a high-speed sync, that might actually solve the problem. And the problem with putting ND filters on your camera is you're going to start losing visibility. And you can't see through your lens anymore, right. especially you if you focus, need a lot yeah. of stops. You know, like, I mean, you have, I have the same filter. You have the, the big stop or the lead 10-stop filter. And once you put that, that lens, even in bright sunlight, it's usually it's, – it's more used for uh, landscape types of photography. But once you put that lens – or that filter in front of your lens, you see nothing. It's just right. black. <laughs> well, Nicole, so, for, the, for the folks out there that are like, okay, what's an ND filter? Oh, you know, it, what, yeah, what is it and what would you want to use it for? A neutral density filter. And all it does, it, it's, it's just like a gray, it, it, you know, from shades of gray to solid black piece of glass that just decreases the amount of light that comes through your lens. So you're able to open up your aperture more. So you have a, you know, so you have a softer background if you're photographing, you know, with the, if you want to photograph at like 2.8 or 1.2 and there's too much light to actually, you know, get to that aperture. Or if you want to have long exposures and increase your shutter time. So, you know, like, a, a, you know, several seconds, several minutes of exposure so you can do things like blur water or get cloud movement in the sky. So that's, that's what I use mine for. Yeah. But that's, yeah, but for, it, you have a hard time seeing through your lens and focusing as well once you start putting those filters in the front. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, what I, what I use it for, one, one good example is I did this shot in Yellowstone, I think it was, where I wanted to shoot this, this moving water and I wanted, I wanted to show the motion of the water, but it was bright outside. So I needed to bring the overall exposure down. So how do you, how do you get a long exposure without overexposing the sensor so that you get blown highlights? And the only way to do that is to reduce the amount of light that's coming into the front of the camera so that you can hold the shutter open longer so that you can get the motion of whatever is moving in front of the camera and show that blurred water and make it turn into cotton. So that's one of the, what, one of the ways that you want to use an ND filter. Doug, what about you? What, what ways do you use ND filters? Uh, I do both of the things that Nicole's talking about. Long exposures allows me to shoot, you know, nice fuzzy water in the daytime. Um, uh, and, um, 
my mind just went blank. <laughs> but an ND filter, that's another place yeah. where you would want to use some of that, that extra money that you saved, right? <laughs> well, yeah, because yeah. they're, no, they're not that, cheap at all. I think that Singray is probably a $400 filter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very cool. One nice thing about the Singray is that because you can just dial it, you can basically open it up uh, to, you know, like a one-stop filter to focus, and then you can dial it back down. Uh, that's nice. I also have these things I experimented with. Um, I'll, I'll find the link for the show notes. But they're little magnetic rings so that instead of screwing the filter in, you basically have a little magnetic attachment so you can pop your filter on and off. Hmm. They come in different sizes, 77 millimeter, 72 millimeter, and so forth. The advantage of that is that you can focus and then you can pop your ND filter on and take your shot oh, that's instead, cool. of having, instead of having to unscrew it. And, of course, if you unscrew it, you probably change the focus of the lens and then you've messed up everything. Yeah. So they're, they're pretty nice, and I'll, I'll find that link. But um, – but yes, in terms of the balance between fill between flash and ambient light, this is something that every photographer goes through at some stage, trying to come to grips with that. The concept that the shutter speed is controlling only the available light, whereas the f-stop is controlling both the strobe and the available light, and so that's how you uh, balance the two. And um, on our high-end cameras and high-end strobes. Uh, instead of being limited to maybe a 250th of a second, we can go what's to what's called high speed sync, which allows us to go up to much higher speeds on my Nikon. I can go to an 8,000th of a second and still do strobe, but I can't get full power. I think I get about one quarter of the power out of the strobe. Still, it's it's a lifesaver when you need to use it to do uh, fill in bright sunlight. Yeah. Cool. All right. Those are two questions. Let's move on to the pick of the week segment. This is picks from you guys our guests that can be anything as long as it is somehow related to photography nicole let's start with you what's your pick of the week uh my pick well it kind of is from being at a photoshop world conference over the weekend because every time you go to a conference you're going to really go anywhere i try and keep business cards with me at all times and so my favorite place to actually get business cards from is is moo.com it's m-o-o just like a cow moo.com they they have some the paper quality is just nice i get the ones with the rounded corners and it's i mean you always know it's a good card when you hand it to someone and then they're like ooh so that's you know it's, i think it's good as as photographers to have some sort of you know especially if we're going to photograph people and say hey i'll give you a copy you know here's my business card why don't you send me an email and i'll email you over a copy or however you know whatever you're going to do but there so that's my pick moo.com cool. i love moo i you know i love about moo i love the fact that they're they're like a web 2.0 company. I think they're based in, in London or someplace mm -hmm. across the pond. And you go in there, you can upload your images, sit in front of your computer, watching TV, upload all your images for your business cards, put your text in there and boom, a couple of days later in the mail, your beautiful box shows up with all these cool cards in there. And each of the cards can have a different image on them. Which yeah. Is, you can put like crazy. 50 different images on the back. Yeah. So you so, basically have a little portfolio in your pocket yeah. when you're walking around. You say, which one would you like? Or you can, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, it, it's pretty cool. I like those. All right. Uh, Mr. K, what is your pick of the week? Well, I, I was thinking about this coming to the show the last couple of days. I said, what am I going to do for my pick of the week? And <laughs> I was shooting some macro stuff and, I realized I was using one of my favorite gadgets. It's a little expensive. It's from my grip bag. It's the Manfrotto snake arm, which you can get with or without their super clamp. Mm -hmm. It's a little pricey. Like I say, it's a $200 range thing. I think a little more with the super clamp. I'm looking at but that thing now. It looks sinister. It, <laughs> is, it is awesome because this arm is like something you can flex into almost any position. 
You can clamp it onto a door, a tripod, and when you tighten that arm, it'll hold, you know, a, a full-frame camera with a 70 to 200 lens. Uh, it is really strong. And uh, I just, I find I use that more than almost anything uh, in, in my bag. Wow. And that's the snake arm with super clamp from... With the super clamp. You can get it without, but I, the super clamp is so good and you save money if you buy the super clamp with the snake arm. So What are we looking what at price-wise? How much does that I, thing go for? I think with the super clamp, it's probably like 220 bucks. So it's, you know... It's not your cheapest accessory, that's for sure. Something else to buy with that thousand dollars. <laughs> there you go. We'll go. We'll go back to Gustav and tell him that's where it goes. I'm sorry to uh, to Adam. Yeah. 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 I'm just kidding, guys. You know, go ahead and buy your Mark III. All right. Um, and my pick is, you know, I think I think Sarah France might have mentioned this on a previous show, but I'm going to mention it again because I had a chance to interview the CEO of this company. His name is Jason Kiefer, and the company is Pixoto.com. And when you first look at it, you're going to you're going to look at it and you're going to be like, okay, this looks very much like 500 pixels or 500 px, but <laughs> it it does. And he, had, I actually called him on that in the interview. Um, but he, uh, he had a very good answer. So you have to listen to the interview to hear that. But essentially what it is, it's kind of like a, th- if you remember Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, if you're old enough to remember that show with Mel Gibson yep. and uh, Tina Turner in it, um, where they had a scene where they solved all of their problems. They didn't have a court system. So they put two people into a cage and the, the saying was two men enter, one man leaves. Right. So that was Thunderdome. That's how they, that's how they resolve disputes. That's kind of how I look at this site. Like Pixoto, you go there and it's an online contest where you go in there and you're image is is pitted up against another image and people can vote so yours can win you know based on the image that it's competing against and it just keeps going and then they have contests on the site i think they're giving away like two thousand dollars a week on the site for winners of different contests so it's it's a really cool place really well laid out and one of the things that i talked to jason about jason key for the ceo was the the I think this is one of the few sites that I've seen so far, not that I've seen every site, but one of the few sites that I've seen that uses Facebook integration to the degree that they use Facebook integration. So it's really tightly integrated. So if someone votes on your image, if they allow it to happen, their profile shows that they voted for your image and your profile shows that you got to vote. And it's just really tightly and virally worked in, in a really smart sort of way. So Definitely check it out. If not just to browse around the images, it's another source like you know, like 500 Pics and DeviantArt and even Flickr, all these different places to get inspired about the images out there. Just check out Pixoto.com. It's really, really cool. All right. Um, looks like we're at the end. We're at the end of another episode. I had another pick that I was going to throw in there, but we're going to save this for another show. It's, a, it's about the Olympus OMD, and I think it deserves more than just a pick of the week mention because this is a really cool and possibly game-changing camera. So I want to I give this thing much more discussion than just a casual pick of the week discussion. That's a good tease, good tease. Yeah, so in the future, all you Olympus lovers, we are going to be talking about the OMD. So stay tuned. So, um, Nicole? Where can people go to find out more about you? Well, you can find me, you know, Twitter, uh, Google Plus, my blog. But instead of listing all those, just go to about.me slash Nicole Z. It's N-I-C-O-L-E-S-Y. Everything is linked right on that page. Easiest way to find me. Smart. Very good. All right. Mr. K, Doug K, where can people go to find you? Same thing. Just start at Doug K, K K-A-Y-E dot com and you'll get to everywhere from there. 
All right. Perfect. Thanks, guys. And if you'd like to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, just check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment on iTunes. We read each and every one of those comments. And speaking of iTunes, make sure you check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to keep up with the shows as soon as they are released. And if you're looking for me, Frederick Van Johnson, you can find me at my new site, mediabytes.com. It's the marketing school for photographers. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.